Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today, we talk with Ian Korf. He is a professor at UC Davis who specializes in genomics and bioinformatic research and education. He is particularly interested in the information flow from genotype to phenotype. Colloquially, he regards this as writing software to read the book of life. When Ian isn't focused intently on his computer, he's focused intently on one of his many hobbies, such as lockpicking, skateboarding, and race cars. In this episode, we talk about viewing DNA as a language, the interdisciplinary nature of his lab and the important role it plays in the field of genetics, and why you should never get an A+. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Korf. Thank you for joining us today. Great. Thanks. Glad to be here. We would love to hear a little bit more about your story. How did you get to Davis? What got you interested in genetics? And overall, how did you end up where you are now? I got here possibly as a mixture of an interest in how biology works and an interest in cheating at computer games. I believe that was um, what I like. I like to think that you can sometimes figure out what a person wants to do when you look at them at sort of 14 or 15 and what they did they spend their time doing. And I think when I was 15, one of my interests was how to cheat at whatever computer game I was playing. And so that turns out to be a lot like genetics. You kind of break in, you change things and you see what happens. And so um, I went off to school to do genetics because I thought biology was great. And then later on, and I realized, oh, I had this other skill set in computers that I, I really miss and I would love to get into that. And then so it was kind of a going back to the kinds of interests that I had earlier. What is genetics? Well, probably the Wikipedia um, description is the study of inheritance. But I think to me, it's, it's not just a study of inheritance, it's the study of transfer of information from some linear code like the DNA into the three-dimensional shapes of things and the behaviors of things. So it's the holy grail of what we're after is the, the, the mapping from a genotype to a phenotype or going backwards from a phenotype to a genotype. So for example, if you want to go backwards, you would say, oh, this person has a disease. Why do they have that disease? And you would go backwards and you could say, oh, it's because of these particular molecules. Um, and then going forward, it's like, oh, this is the properties of this particular person's genome. Then what can they expect later in life? It's like, oh, well, for optimum health, they should probably stay away from caffeine or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that, uh, and it's in all things. It's not just like health and disease. I think if we're trying to understand how to repair certain types of things that exist or make certain things better, we have to understand how they work. I'm not in the, in the really the business of curing diseases or... Um, solving immediate problems, but more on the theoretical side of trying to figure out how to understand how life works so that we can um, make better decisions about when we're, you know, tinkering with it. Could you talk to us a little bit more about your research and how your interdisciplinary lab fills a gap within academia? Basically, at a high level, what do you do? Um, So you're right. I do have an interdisciplinary lab, which means that I don't sort of focus on one thing. I do a lot with computers and I do a lot with molecular biology. And I have a lot of collaborators who are biologists who ask interesting questions. And I then try to 
provide some kind of solutions to that. So in, in a very general way, um, I would say I am trying to be the glue between more traditional biology and more traditional kind of computer science. So on the side of the computer science, they have a lot of solutions to problems. They are very good at finding like, here's the answer, but they're not really as much interested in what's the question. And in biology, it's more about what's the question. And, and then once they have an interesting question, they will do anything to try and solve it. And a lot of times that, that solution is over in the, um, in the computer science field. And they don't necessarily know how to talk to each other, the biologists and computer scientists. And some part of my job is to be the person that can sort of go between those kinds of things and understand both sides. Do you think more students need to fill a similar role that you fill? I think there needs to be people in all of those different areas. You need to pe have people who are domain experts. And you also have to have people who are experts at being between the domains. Um, if we don't have the biologists creating problems for us, we don't have interesting problems to solve and it doesn't go anywhere. If we don't have the computer scientists, you know, creating solutions to sometimes problems that don't even exist yet. That's like in the you know realm of computer science. Some of the things that they do is solving problems that we don't even have, like nobody's asked that question, but it's still valid. Like here's a solution to this thing, I can prove it. Those are very useful things to do. Um, and so we need people in both sides of that and also in the middle. Um, do we need more people in the middle? Traditionally, we don't have a lot of people in the middle. So yeah, we do need more people in the middle, but um, to have a healthy scientific sort of ecosystem, we need um, people in uh, lots of different areas. But admittedly, there's not a lot of people who are like me who are who are in the middle part of it. But I think that a lot of the students these days, we understand that they want training in more than just one area. And so like the graduate groups that I belong to, we, we try to provide that. You talked about coming back to computer science a little bit later in your career. And that is something that allowed you to kind of be that middleman in that conversation. Do you think that it's possible to train students to be that middle interpreter? Or is that something that typically would come with time? Oh, I definitely think so. Like we, we do it now. We, when people come into our graduate program, we teach them computer programming as part of what they do. And, and the sort of the quantitative parts of, of, of the biology and also the, the, you know, sort of more traditional parts of it. So they're definitely in our graduate program. Also, actually also true at the undergraduate level, lots of, um, like if you look like at some of the classes that have been recently developed, they're definitely at the intersection of biology and more mathematical kind of stuff. So, um, yes, I think it's that the people who are coming into school now don't really have a choice. This is the way you would learn it. And it's like students who come to UC Davis or really any college these days are getting sort of the modern interpretation of what biology is. And that has changed over time. Um, there were at one point in time, things like cytogenetics was an emerging field, which is looking at DNA under a microscope. Do people do cytogenetics now? No, they don't. Other things have taken its place. The new microscope is a computer. And so people are going to need training in computers in order to be able to understand biology. So yes, the, stu the students are getting going to get that education no matter what. Could you speak on your approach to genetics? You've mentioned in the past that it is similar to a language. Could you talk about how students should probably 
maybe take a different approach to understanding the genome? I think a lot of people who study DNA look at DNA um, as a language because it is just a bunch of letters. That's how we, we represent it. And of course, they're not actually letters, they're chemicals. But whether you're talking about nucleotides, A, C, G, and T, or you're talking about amino acids, A, C, D, E, F, G, et cetera, there's 20 of them. Um, when we represent them as characters, they look like you could write them down in a book and learn it as a language. And so the, the algorithms that we use to understand DNA and RNA and protein are actually derived from the same kinds of um, algorithms that are used to, to um, interpret um, real languages, like natural languages. And so some of the famous algorithms that we use, like the Viterbi algorithm, for example, have its have their origins in things like language and speech recognition and we use the same kinds of properties for 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 looking at dna and trying to figure out what it does and amazingly it works and the reason why it works is because um, when you start to bring together a collection of letters different parts of the genome different parts of the dna of an organism are speaking different languages like the parts that code for protein sequences um, those parts have physically different properties, like they might be more GC rich um, than the the stuff between them that might be more AT rich. Um, and so it's it's the pattern of letters that you see that 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 defines like the properties of a sequence. And if you were probably you know really well trained, um, you could look at a sea of letters and say, of A, C's, G's, and T's and be able to pick out which areas look like they're protein and which areas are splice sites and that kind of stuff. But really, if you think about the number of letters that you would find in a typical genome, like the human genome is 3 billion bases long. So it's 3 billion letters. Like trying to look at that by eye, it's an immensely difficult problem. And so that's where we use the computers to interpret this and say, let's imagine that this was like an a, you know, English language or something like that. What kind of patterns do we see? And if you were looking at the English language, you would say, well, one of the patterns you could see is like, you know, E is a very common letter in the English language. It's also the case that E is a very common um, letter in the French language. And if you were to look at a histogram, like the probabilities of every letter of English, you would see that some of the most popular letters are, you know, E and I and A and such like that. And it's also true of French. In fact, they have very similar letter frequencies. And yet, you probably wouldn't mistake French words for English words. They don't really look that the same um, because the context, the, the the probabilities of some letters being next to others aren't you know, the same. While individual letters might have similar properties, um, when you start putting them together, they don't. And that's the kind of things that we're looking for in DNA and other sequences is that what are the, um, the higher order patterns that we see, not just one letter at a time, but two or three or four letters at a time. And it turns out once you start doing that, then certain parts of the genome look different from others and you can sort of tell them apart. And so getting back to what we were talking about before, how do I describe what I do in very general terms? Well, in very general terms, we're learning how to read this book of life. Like people often talk about the genome as the book of life. And we're writing the software to try and understand how to read it and what it means. Once you've been able to decode it and interpret it in patterns that you can read it, what do you do with that? Well, there's a number of things that you would do with it. One of the things you would do with it is just take a catalog of all the parts. Like what what makes up 
uh, an organism? How many genes are there in them and what do they do? Well, first you have to find them all. And then later on you figure out what they do. But um, one of the interests in computational gene finding is to determine where all the genes are. And while there are some experimental techniques that you could use to that, and possibly the experimental techniques in some cases might even be better. Um, for example, someone might sequence RNAs and say, oh, every place you find an RNA might be a gene. Um, there are RNAs that are very difficult to acquire because those genes are only turned on under very, very specific conditions or under um, very brief windows of time. And so you won't ever see those transcripts. And yet the other properties of them still make them look like genes. And so understanding how genes are built um, it's Im important a way of um, going to find some of these genes that are harder to find. But also, if you wanted to make a new gene that's never been done before, and you didn't know the rules of how to make one, then you might not be very successful. I think part of the reasons that we study biology is to try and say, you know, fix some of the things that are broken. And another reason is to create new things that have never been made before. And so how would you know how to make something new if you don't know what the rules are, how to make something? So part of what, what the reason why I'm interested in, in using computers and, and such to make models of what genes are is to understand what the rules are. Like, how do I make something new if I wanted to make something new? Is this sort of borderline mad scientists kind of stuff? I don't know. I think it's taken in the wrong context. Anything could be that way. But I think... Personally, I mean, I don't have any designs to be a mad scientist, but I do have designs to understand how to make the world, you know, sort of a better place through science. And I feel like the more we understand about the way life works, the better precision we have when we're trying to, say, fix it or try and um, make some positive changes. I love the idea of being able to create after discovery. Because I think people aren't always seeking random discovery. And that's that sounds like kind of what you were doing here to an extent. And what are some of those problems you're seeking to solve? Let me give you an I let me give you a, a a story that happened at UC Davis, some kind of cool stuff that that UC Davis has been involved with in the past and and why we don't need to just discover things we want to and sometimes make things with the knowledge that we have and so one of the really um fun programs that exist academically in the world is something called iGEM which is an international um genetic engineering um contest in which college students participate in they're the ones who do the work and they compete to make machines like out of like out of like bacteria so one of the projects um at uc davis was they made um a bacterium i believe that could sense rancid olive oil so you know the campus is full of olive trees and so it's sort of like how do you make something that could imagine smell the presence of rancid olive oil, send that out to a signal to something else and have that signal detect it. And then you could walk around and be like, hey, I found this rancid olive oil. Maybe that doesn't sound like a great idea, but let's imagine a different scenario. Like right now we have dogs in the airports, you know, to sniff for bombs. Imagine 
you could have instead of a dog doing that, but a cybernetic device. It's you hold it in your hand and it basically has the smelling apparatus to know how to you know, sense certain types of chemicals, nitroglycerin or whatever else. And when it finds those, sends the signal up to some other thing that turns a light on that says, hey, we found this nitroglycerin in the airport or something like that. Well, that machine is actually a mixture of electronic components and living components. And it's like, you've made, you know, this cybernetic kind of tool. And it's kind of a piece of science fiction fantasy. And they did it here at UC Davis. And they won the um, iGEM competition when you're with that. And it, it's kind of a big deal because the UC Davis iGEM teams have very, very little funding. Um, and they're run by some very passionate and smart people like Matt, Mark Facciati. Um, and he was able to compete with his team against people who have million dollar budgets coming from other um, countries. So it was a nice feather in the cap for UC Davis. But I think that, that, that shows that um, what we're trying to do with science sometimes is not just understand stuff, but then get to a point in the knowledge where we can create something that has never existed before, like a bacterium that can sense the presence of rancid olive oil or whatever else that you're interested in. Um, and I think that um, in the future, we'll have more um, machinery that that is sort of biologically um, constructed. Some parts of it like do things that where we don't really have a good mechanism to do it right now with whatever sensors we have. They're made out of metal and ceramics and other types of stuff. But those sensors will be biology-based. Um, that, you know, whole area of biology, synthetic biology, we call that, is super exciting and still in its infancy. It's going to take a long time before we figure out how all these components work together. But it's a super fascinating area of engineering. It's a sort of at the intersection of engineering and biology and, um, and you know, um, I, there's probably a lot of computer stuff in there as well. But if I was going back to school, I would probably want to do synthetic biology. Um, because I want to build things that have maybe never been built before. It's one of those sort of, um, am I trying to do that necessarily because I want to make the world a better place? Or do I want to do it just because I think in some ways it feels like science fiction? I think it's actually the latter, that it's it's the science fiction of it. I, I'm intrigued by what we can accomplish as human beings. And when we when we like look to the stars and say, "Hey, I'd like to go out there and journey among the stars," I think it's an uh, it's that's one of the things that we're that we're here for is to is to dream big, um, and not just not only to solve the problems that are immediate; those are problems that also are very important, but also to to dream big. Did you learn to dream big, or have you always carried that mindset? Hmm, that's a good question. I think it's hard to separate our internal sort of motivations from the things that, um, that we, that we were introduced to around me. Like what, what am I motive? What motivated me more? My teachers that I had when I was young, um, my father being a scientist, Saturday morning cartoons, it's hard to say. And it's possible that Saturday morning cartoons was the reason why I saw, you know, cartoons with like, you know, people shooting lasers around and I thought, okay, I need to do something that's science fiction based or something. It's hard to know, but I think certainly I have some internal motivations too. I don't think everything is external, but I think it's really hard sorting out which ones are which. We talked a little bit about 
looking into the future and innovations that haven't yet come to light. One of the things that that has come to light is the current use of data and the relationship with technology in biology. Could you speak to how your work has developed throughout this technological innovation? Yeah, there's a lot of changes that happen. Like it seems like maybe every five or 10 years, there's some new big technology that gets invented that changes the landscape of science drastically. And there have been several of these. Okay. Um, one of them was something called microarrays. Um, and this was a, allowed people to simultaneously assay the gene expression of many genes at the same time. So you could look at and say, instead of saying, hey, this one gene is now different in this tissue from this tissue, you could look at all the genes and say, oh, look, these 500 are changed in this tissue. And then microarrays were a huge, huge um, area of gene expression. And if you look today, how many people use them? Nobody. It's like it died um, because it was replaced by a better technology that this RNA seq. So high throughput sequencing has become so inexpensive that it's now taken the place of a microarrays because it was it's better, but it's also gotten a lot cheaper. Um, there's still some areas that's like microarrays aren't completely dead, but um, new technologies come along and they replace the old ones. And then people sort of forget about the old ones. And there have been a lot of different ones. CRISPR-Cas9 is an example of something that is science fiction. If you were asking people about that 20 years ago, it's like, imagine editing a genome and you could just choose what where you wanted to make the genome, you know, like how you wanted to change it. It's like, no, that's science fiction. You'll never see that in your lifetime. Here it is. You know, I'm walking around with a tricorder in my pocket and people can edit genomes. This is the science fiction future that... Uh, didn't imagine I would be living in 30 years ago. Um, so yeah, the, the, the presence of new technologies is constantly changing how we operate in our own fields. And for me, because I'm sort of a person who works with a lot of data, it means that we have to retool and, and understand these new kinds of data that are coming out every time they come, somebody comes out with something new. Yeah, it is a little bit burdensome sometimes because you now have to learn these new technologies. But on the other hand, it's also really fun. And like, I am never bored at my job. I am sometimes overworked in my job and um, sometimes maybe discouraged because of the field is moving so fast in some ways and I can't keep up in some ways, but it's never boring. I can tell you that the, the constant change, it's not that just the change in the technologies, it's in academia, you have a lot of change, a turnover of the people and the students of today being different from the students of yesterday and uh, and what people are interested in that this it's a academia is a really fun environment because it's always uh, changing that was mostly speaking from the past to now mm -hmm. so now to the future where do you see your field evolving especially with ai and machine learning being such a big buzzword for most people at the moment could you maybe explain how you might take those technologies and implement them in your research? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Like wh what can you predict going forward? And certainly some of that is the importance of AI and how that's gonna change how we do science. Um, it certainly will um, change how we do science. Um, and But just because you have a new tool doesn't necessarily know, mean you know how to use it. So 
people still need to be able to answer the ask questions in an interesting way before they can use the tool to try and help them solve it. And and some tools, you know, like AI kind of things, they're more complicated than other tools. Like there's a big difference between a hammer, you know, which is a very simple interface and, you know, some kind of, you know, more delicate microtome machine or something else that people use in a lab. And, you know, one of them takes a lot more training than the other one. So even though there's going to, like AI is going to make a big impact, it's not going to be, it's not going to be simple. Like you're going to have to have people who are trained to use that. And that whole area is going to, it's hard to say where it's going to be, except that, like I think many technologies, in the beginning, everybody is sort of running around crazy um, trying to figure out how stuff works. And then eventually a few people figure out how to, the best way to do it, and it becomes a product that you buy. Um, sequencing was like that. Everybody used to have sequencers in their lab, and now you just go to a company and you do it. You would never do it yourself. Um, and I think some of what I do today is like, it should eventually become something you purchase off the shelf. I don't like things that are, uh, that are research efforts today and like exciting cutting edge research efforts, things like let's make, you know, rancid olive oil sniffer, maybe someday in the future, you just buy it off the shelf. Um, and so things like AI right now are the wild west. There's a lot of areas of, of, biology and that I know of that feel like the wild west single cell RNA seq type of stuff. Also, um, there's a bunch of different, um, technologies that haven't been around long enough for people to have figured out what's the best way to use it. Um, and, and those research areas will eventually become standardized and then we will move on to other things that are even, you know, like more exciting and newer and, and will require that same kind of excitement and passion that we we see right now in 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 the ai field it's not always going to be ai it's something that's going to be post ai excitement also um but it's going to be a while before we get out of the the current um ai craze for sure ai is often talked about in relation with automation can you speak to how increased automation could potentially lead to more creativity in the field that was a really interesting question, I have to say. Because most of the time when people think of automation, they think about maybe less creativity. They may think about, oh, automation takes away from people's, what people will do because we'll just automate it. It's like, and then, you know, people won't, we won't need the people to do anything anymore. I think there is that fear. But if you looked at something like chess, um, you know, machines are better at playing chess than people now right? I mean, there was a long period of time when people and machines were trying to fight each other out and, and then like, which one's actually better? Well, now we're, I think we're at the point where machines are better and, um, and faster. And so what does this mean of chess? Does this mean nobody plays chess anymore? It doesn't mean nobody plays chess anymore. In fact, chess from the perspective of human beings might become more interesting because now you can, like, how long does it take to play a game of chess? I don't know. I don't play chess, but maybe it takes 20 minutes. So how many games of chess can you play in your lifetime? How many things can you learn about chess in your lifetime? Not that many, but if you can get the computer to play chess against itself a billion times, you will get to learn from those billions of games and things that were tried in those. And so the opportunity to, to, to do more interesting things with chess exists now because you can get the, the machines to help us understand the different strategies that you could play. So um, I think that, AI and automation stuff, there is a downside for sure. And that will be dehumanizing and take people's jobs away and stuff like that. 
Um, but there's also an opportunity for um, people to to go places that they didn't go before because of it, because certain things were too laborious. And now they can maybe be more creative without having to do all the grunt work that was there. I played this interesting game called the Subsurface Circular. I don't know if you guys have played that, but no. it's sort of this, it's this game where you're, um, you're a robot and you're, you have, um, you know, you're an intelligent robot and you're riding around in a subway and um, then you're interviewing various other robots. And what you find out is um, that there's this scheme to overthrow the entire world um, in which robots generally do menial labor. And humans generally do like, you know, the huge stuff that humans do, the kind of creative like stuff. But it turns out that humans are really bad at the things that humans do. And the robots could be better at that. Humans might be happier by doing things like their own labor, like doing menial labor it makes people happy. Like I liked, you know, repairing shoes and I'm good at it and I would feel good doing it or something like that, maybe. Um, and so like, let the machines organize all the stuff and have the humans do the labor. This is like the, and then um, you, you have to decide whether you're going to support this revolution or not. That's the sort of game at the end of it. And at the very end of the game, there's this, one of the robots comes to you and says, look, here's the puzzle. I don't know the answer to the puzzle. You're the key to the puzzle because you're a really smart robot. And I can tell you this, um, if you, if you, you have, <laughs> they end up giving you a gun and they say, well, if you shoot this robot, it will end the revolution and the robots will stay right where they are. And the humans will stay by right where they are and never will be, be kind of unhappy. However, if you don't do that, if you kill yourself now that you know it, um, then we're going to have a revolution and it's going to flip things over and maybe it'll be for the better. And you got to decide, are you going to shoot yourself in the head or not? So it's a really interesting game. It definitely sounds like it. I can't tell you what I did. <laughs> <laughs> Would never ask. <laughs> or, or what the ending of the game was if you do it that way. <laughs> but it's interesting. I can tell you that. After hearing you speak about a lot of predictions about the future, it sounds like the role of the human is to be curious and to ask questions. I keep thinking about how you skateboard, you race cars, you write books. Do you think that doing all these different things has allowed you to ask better questions and do you think the students should pick up these weird, menial, interesting, different tasks to continue to see the world in a new light in order to ask better questions? I don't think skateboarding or racing cars or writing books has made me better at asking questions necessarily. I don't think that has made me better at my day job. I think that's made me energized maybe more outside of my day job, which means maybe I'm more energized inside my day job. Like, I think everybody needs like some kind of things that they pressure release valves or something that they go out and they have fun. And then, and, um, and then they're more productive in their working hours. Like you need to find a balance between the working and the playing. And I think some of the things that I do, I don't really think that they necessarily directly help what I'm doing, working, making, helping me be creative or ask interesting questions. They mightn't be detrimental, but in terms of mental health, 
may be useful. So I think like if you think about a dog, like should you own a dog? Well, you know, if you own a dog and you have to feed a dog, that's money that you could have been spending on a person. And is it is it even ethical to own dogs when like, you know, you're caring for dogs and paying for their hospital bills and you're not paying for the homeless person down the street from for eating? You could look at it that way. Another way to look at it is that the dog is part of your mental health program. And it's actually really good for your mental health and you would be miserable without the dog. And so um, I think maybe some of my hobbies are, I don't have a dog, but maybe if I did, maybe I wouldn't have so many stupid hobbies. So I think that, no, I don't think it directly um, necessarily improves my day-to-day -day creativity. But I, I think part of what, yeah, I think like you're saying like as humans, maybe being curious is one of the things that we're supposed to do. I feel like it is. But I think also, um, we're also supposed to be a little bit happy. And so you have to find some, some time to be happy. I mean, we get one life to live. And so I think some of it, you should, some of that time you should be thinking about how am I going to be happy? But I mean, that shouldn't be the only thing you think of, but you do have to take care of yourself in order to take care of other people also. Talked about taking care of yourself. Can you give some general advice to students? Yes, I do have lots of general advice on people taking care of themselves. One of them is um, don't stress out so much about your grades because long term, I'm thinking like 10 years from now, nobody's going to ask. Nobody's going to say, hey, what grade did you get in chemistry? And nobody's going to care if you spent like every waking hour in order to get an A plus in organic chemistry. Nobody cares. Like, you know, what was just as good? The A minus was just as good. In fact, the A minus was better because the amount of extra time it took to get an A plus could have been used to take a different course, you know, to, to and, and, you know, get more breadth of your education or maybe spend time with your friends or your dog or whatever else it is to enjoy life more. And I think it's, it's really stressful to be a student at any time, but today it's really stressful. There's a lot of like, oh, you have to do this and this and this to be, if you want to go someplace in life. Um, and I think that from a long-term perspective, that's not true. It does seem like that in the short-term perspective. But if you ask somebody, you know, right now, like, hey, what grades did you get in your, this or whatever? It's like, and how much did that matter? They might actually still remember their grades because, you know, school is terrifying to us. That's why we still have nightmares about school, even when we're 50 something. But like, how much was that grade really important? Well, it was important to me at the time, but did it impact any of the things that I do and how I got somewhere? Not really. It's like, your grades aren't that important, but the things that are important, the things that I look back and I say, like, what was really important to me about that particular period of time? It's usually about the people um, that I was with. You know, life is a journey that you take with other people. I remember seeing this cartoon with this panda and the dragon, and the dragon's riding on top of this panda and says, hey, panda, what's more important, the journey or the destination? And the panda says, it's the company. And it's like, yeah, I'm, I wouldn't have said that when I was 15. I would have already said the destination. Um, and then later on, maybe I would have said the journey. And today I say, it's the company. That's the thing that I remember when I think about back and like, oh, I was doing this and this and this. What mattered most of that? Was it that what you accomplished, you know, personally? Was it, you know, how, what rights did you, you know, 
you know, wrongs did you write in the world or whatever that, or was it the people that you were with? And a lot of times it's like the people you're with is the thing that you carry with you much longer later on. And I would say for, for people that try and balance out the, the stresses of being a student is to try and make time to, um, to be with other people. And I think possibly my most important piece of advice for students, which they don't ever take, is to ask questions and to, and not just ask questions, is to ask for help. So when you ask for help, at least two people win. The person who gets the answer, you know, wins and the person who provides the answer wins. There's like, when you have that kind of like, lots of people like to feel useful in the world. I'm sure you guys like to feel useful when this is, you're doing this podcast because you want to feel useful, I think, because other people enjoy it and you will get immense enjoyment yourselves out of other people listening to this and valuing and getting something else. Like you want to give back. And this is your, one of your outlets to giving back. But another way to give back is to ask for help. When you ask for help from somebody else, they get to feel useful. If you go around and do everything yourself and you're self-sufficient, you're robbing people of an opportunity to be useful. It's actually quite selfish only to solve problems yourself. You should ask for help, even when you don't need it, just to create interaction. To me, that this is this is one of the lessons that people um, it, are, find it hard to learn. And also, the whole traditional schooling system actively discourages this. We don't, we sort of like, if you want to take a bird's eye view of schooling, it's like, let's have a whole bunch of students compete against each other for answers of a test that are previously known. It's like, that's not the way the world works later on. It's sort of like, let's work together to ask questions that nobody's answered and for which solutions don't exist, right? It's like, why do we keep, you know, why do we teach students to be in isolation and to try and, you know, just like compete with each other when they, when we, when we don't really want that later on. And it's a difficult transition for people to get out of later on. And so one of the things I would love for people um, to do who are you know, going to school and thinking, how am I going to have a good education? Well, you know, ask for help and provide help and, and, you know, walk with people on this journey and don't do it on your own. I'm off my soapbox now. Stay on it. <laughs> what is one of your biggest academic failures? Good Lord. Um, how many grants that I've written that failed? Um, a lot of them. Lots of grants fail. Um, other academic failures? Um, not understanding the needs of students. Um, it's actually very difficult to be, I didn't get into becoming a professor because I wanted to educate people. I got to become a professor at research at a, you know, tier one research university to do science, right? To ask questions, to come up with clever solutions to problems. That doesn't have anything to do with like interacting with people all that much. Um, there's a lot of thinking involved. Of course, I'm saying you should work with other people, but it doesn't involve working with a hundred people who are students. And being focused on your research, you only have so much time in a day. It means you're probably not being receptive to the to the needs of your students that you're also, that's part of your job. Like part of my job, yeah, is to be smart and creative, but part of it is to be sympathetic and receptive. And I'm traditionally not, that's not how I got here. Like those weren't the credentials that got me this job was being a people person. And yet those are the skills that I feel like, um, 
I could have had, I would have liked to have done better with. Um, I think there's a lot of students who I haven't been, I'm not just talking about students in a classroom, but students in a research setting, like people who are interns or mentees of mine, um, that I haven't been as good a mentor as I could have been because I didn't really know how to. I didn't have the training and or the motivation. It never really occurred to me that I should do these things. So I think some of the the greatest sort of failures are when we don't know that we're messing up. You know, it's like once you know better, you can do better. But if you don't know better, you're just going to keep going on and doing the same thing. And so um, trying to be open to the ideas of like that you're not doing a good job is important. But we all have our blind spots and sometimes they're, they're massive. <laughs> How will you know? Um, so I'm sure that I do things on a regular basis that I will be ashamed of in 10 years. Like, I can't believe I didn't see that. But um, those are my biggest failures, probably the ones that I don't know about. Do you think that's common for professors, especially given the fact that we're at a top research university? Do you think that a professor's intelligence and familiarity with their subject matter inhibits their ability to teach students who are learning this for the first time, especially undergraduate students? Do you think that their the professor's intelligence can possibly inhibit the message coming across clearly. I'm not sure if there's professor's intelligence, but the professor's um, devotion to their own research, their singular vision of what they're trying to do. Um, certainly, like there's only so much time in a day, and especially young scientists are incredibly motivated to make their research program go forward so that they get tenure, for example. Um, and so it's very difficult for for young professors to balance, I think, the, the needs of their lab and themselves and all the people that they interact with. So, um, but on the other hand, this is, I mean, the system that we have is an interesting system. I'm not sure it's the ideal system to be that your professors, when you go to class, are also cutting edge researchers, but it does give you like firsthand experience with those people who are on the front lines of interesting research. And if we didn't have that system, maybe you would just be taught by people who really don't have any firsthand experience in it. They might actually be better teachers, but they don't really have research programs. Um, it's kind of a, it's a difficult situation. I think it, there is some value in having uh, your instructors being people who are really doing the work. But on the other hand, if they spent more, if they had more training and how to be good teachers, that would be a good thing too. I mean, I'm guilty of this. I, I need more training, but at the same time, it's like, do I really want to spend a lot more time getting training? Not really. I mean, I have a lot of, I, there's only so many hours in a day. So it's, it's a difficult position that we're in. But that said, it's a pretty good job being a professor. I mean, um, your, most of your professors are real do-gooders by nature, and they want to do a good job teaching. Um, it's just that their schedules are so full that sometimes they have to let that slide a little bit. So I guess I'm saying have sympathy with your professors when you go to school. <laughs> their lives aren't that easy. But also they wouldn't change it. They do love their jobs and they love talking to students. And so if you can engage with them, ask questions, ask for help with your professor, you will find out that underneath this, you know, potentially you know, their exterior might seem a little bit hard to penetrate because their minds 
in other places that once you get to know them, they're all, you know, a lot of do-gooders underneath that are, you know, more squishy than hard. Is it possible to write a book in 30 days? It is possible. It won't be a good book. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that I do is I teach a course on NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month. Um, this is a a practice every November, people all around the world do it. Like many great things started in the Bay Area. And that started probably 15 years ago or something, maybe even 20 now. But uh, NaNoWriMo is this, let's, let's write a novel in a month. And a lot of people have this idea that they want to write a novel. It's like, oh, I would love to write a novel. But do you really want to write when it's a lot of work? I mean, if you think about professional novelists, they might write one novel a year and they're working on it full time. Like, what chance does a per, an ordinary person have of writing a novel in one month, not a year? And on, and they're doing other things during that time. If you're a student at UC Davis, you've got a lot of classes to take. How are you going to write a novel in one month at the same time? And yet, I do teach a course on it, and people attempt to write a novel in one month. How do we do it? We lower our standards, and we don't try to write a perfect novel. And that's okay because um, do you think that when Leonardo da Vinci painted the Mona Lisa that it was just like, oh, let's just go to the, you know, paint and do it? No, there was probably 50 sketches that were thrown away ahead of time. You have to give yourself the opportunity to do 50 sketches before you work on your masterpiece. And you just, they're not sketches that you edit. You do it and you throw it away. And that's what NaNoWriMo can be, an opportunity to learn how to produce something that isn't actually up to your standards. Like you don't have, most students, their standards are too high because they've been drummed into them that, you know, you've got to get in, you know, A plus in this, or, you know, your grammar has to be perfect. And it's not true. You can make sketches of things and get ideas of things and experience things. And with the intention of it not being good, just so that you have the experience. If you go around thinking, oh, this thing has to be good and it's going to take this amount of time, and then somebody said, like, it's going to take a hundred hours to do this one project. It's like, you got 10. What are you going to do in 10? Well, I'm just not going to do it. Well, there was something to be learned in those 10 hours. And if you can let go of your overly critical self and get to be a more like open and accepting self and say, you know what? There's only 10 hours to do this. It can't be done well, but I could do it poorly. You will learn a lot more by doing it poorly than not doing it at all. And so when I tell people, like, what's the number one thing you should do when you're attempting to write a novel in a month? I tell them to turn their screen off. Like, don't look. You're not allowed to look. Because as soon as you look, you're going to realize, oh, I made a spelling error. And you're going to go backwards and fix it. Or I'm going to make the mouse back, take the mouse, and I'm going to put it here on the page or something like that. It's going backwards. It's editing. In NaNoWriMo, if you're trying to write a novel in a month, there's only time to go forwards. And so you turn off the screen, you can only go forward, not look back. And there's a lot of times in life, I think when, when you'll find out that there isn't enough time to do a good enough job, something that even you would feel like, yeah, that's my minimum. And you just sort of say, all right, I'm going to have to do less than what I think is good. And even your effort of less than good, surprisingly useful and other people might really appreciate it. It's like, not every creation that that someone makes has to be a unique, amazing thing. Like not every meal has to be an Iron Chef meal. 
we don't subsist on Iron Chef meals. We subsist on sandwiches, like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I ate four peanut butter and jelly sandwiches a day when I was 15. I was growing like a weed and like that was enough calories to do it. And, you know, that wasn't a high form of eating, but it was sustaining. And, um, and things like NaNoWriMo, where you're just throwing words out there and being creative and not editing, it might not be good, but it could be sustaining and it could be, um, you could be, you know, a growth experience. So yeah, is it possible to write a month, a novel in a month? Not a good one, but a useful one for sure. Like, have I ever read those novels over again? No. Would I, would I try editing those? No. It would actually be better to start over from the beginning than to try and edit it. Just like some of the sketches, like, you know, should you edit the sketch that you made that you were, you know, like I'm doing 30 or 40 sketches today before I do, you know, even think about my masterpiece. Yeah. You don't have to go back and edit them. You just throw it out and start over again. There's nothing wrong with that. We call that in programming, like a ground zero rewrite. And you learn so much when you do ground zero rewrites that I sort of suggest that to people. Um, but they're like, I teach programming classes also. And, and when you tell someone, hey, let's do a ground zero rewrite on this thing. It's like, it took me an hour to write that program. You now want me to throw it entirely away and start from the beginning? Yes, exactly. Like, oh, I don't think so. The thing is, the next time you do it, it takes you 20 minutes. The next time you do after that, it takes five minutes. And then it gets to the point where it's like, yeah, I know how to do that thing. And I can rewrite that thing in three minutes every time. It's sort of like practicing your scales on piano or anything else. Like you have to practice certain types of things over and over again. And, you know, yeah, it was painful the first time, but it does get easier. And that repetition makes it is where the expertise comes from. So, yeah. So should you keep writing the same terrible novel? Every time November comes around, yes, you'll get much better at it. And one day it will turn into actually your masterpiece. It definitely sounds like creativity is a muscle you have to learn to flex. And rapid experimentation is a great way to get there. Yeah, I think so. I think it is a muscle you should flex. And I think it's, and I think a lot of people aren't encouraged to use that muscle. A lot of, um, my, I have a, um, cousin who's a who was an amazing concert violinist at the age of like you know 10 he was playing with like orchestras and like he was a real child prodigy um i asked him one time have you ever composed music and he said no just play it and i thought wow i'm sure there's a lot of creativity in playing music it's a very personal thing to play it but also there should be the composing of it there should be that part of the creativity too and i'm wondering why um, a lot of people don't get to that part. They don't get to do the like creative. And maybe it's because when you, when you play the music by these masters, you think, oh my God, I could never write anything like that because they're just so good. And like that level of music could, I could never understand how to write it. But I think that's, that's part of what you, why you should try it. You should experience the, the difficulties of it and the creative process of it. And then maybe, you know, appreciate your skills and the other people's skills more. If he's listening, I know <laughs> there's no way he is, but he's actually, what's interesting is like, this is, you probably got to edit this stuff out, but he, um, he used to fly to the Juilliard school in New York city from Ohio, like every week to go to school and fly back like all the time. Like, this is like how serious things while he was there, he got interested in psychology and now he is a psychologist who does performance psychology for musicians. 
Yeah, so he hasn't played a violin in decades for this thing that he would spend his every waking hour doing. He stopped doing it when he went to a music school and learned about psychology. Yeah, it was really fascinating. And now like when he, what he does is um, he coaches people on things like performance anxiety and stuff like that, like how to get the most out of your performance. There's lots of people who do that in the world, but it turns out it's important to have, to be in a domain where that's understood. Like there are driving coaches, there's music coaches, there's football coaches, all sorts of stuff. They're all saying the same things about how you get better and how you, you know, get in the zone or flow and stuff like that. There's lots of that talk, but it's important to have somebody in your domain that speaks that language to you. And it can't be just a very general thing. Like one of the very first books on this was actually something called the inner game of tennis. And they talked about like, and, and so that inner game of tennis has turned into a lot of other inner games of things. And, um, that is a, people read the inner game of tennis not because they're interested in tennis necessarily, but they're more interested in the sort of overall state of flow and of high performance and what it means to be able to get to a state of high performance. Um, but it's more useful when there are those kinds of books also in specific areas. So for example, my programming class that I teach, it's called programming for biologists. It's a programming class. It's just an ordinary programming class, but all the context, the theme is biology. So when the students go in and say, oh, I'm trying to understand how to split up an array into different things, we talk about them as restriction enzymes because biologists understand restriction enzymes. They don't think about, oh, let's do some of this thing with like, you know, accruing compound interest. They don't care about compound interest. You know, that's not what, that's not what motivates them. They understand things like, you know, genetics. And so the examples of the programming examples in the class are things that are based around biology and genetics and molecular biology and those kinds of things, because that's what interests them. And they become more interested in programming if they can, if they, if they love the context of it. Um, I don't happen to love like compound interest. I'm not going to teach it. Um, but like that kind of level of domain specific and general that mixture of those things, I think is, it, 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 it helps the, the learning. Could that be a strategy to get students more interested in subjects they otherwise wouldn't be drawing those parallels between oh, something I think they're so. forced to learn and something that they want to learn? I think so. So uh, in my high performance driving class, there's math in there. There's math that none of them would be interested in learning. But if you put it in the context of, is it faster to drive around like this or faster to drive it like around like this? They're like, oh, how would you calculate that? And like, then it becomes a problem that they're passionate about. Like, is it, imagine you had a square with like, with sort of rounded edges and you were driving around that square with rounded edges, speeding up on the straights and then jamming on your brakes, driving around and then speeding up. Would it be faster to drive it around like that or a circle that touched each one of the points of the square? And you just go around in a complete circle. The circle is much larger and it's got a constant speed and you can easily calculate from the speed and the grip of the car, like how fast it's going to go in the distance. You can say, this is how long it takes to go around, to go around a circle. How long does it take to go around a square? Oh, well then you have to figure out like how much you can accelerate, how much you break and how much the distance is like that. Nobody would want to do that calculation on their own. However, if you put it in the context of this is cars. And let's imagine you were, you were in a race, which one would you do? 
turns out the circle is a lot faster. Not just a tiny bit faster, just like a lot faster. Um, and then when they see that, I think then the math becomes, it's more approachable, more fun, more applicable, it's more motivating. Yeah. Sounds like life's a game and we should treat it like one. Play I, around. Yeah, you should play around for sure. I think that's one of the things that students don't get to do enough of because um, they are sometimes reprimanded for playing, for treating it like a game or for doing some things poorly. I think this is one of the areas where boys get to have a lot more freedom than girls. Girls are often stereotypically in our society, you know, it's like they don't, a boy does something and does something wrong and, and it's creative. It's like, well, yeah, you totally messed up, but wasn't that cool? And the girl is just sort of like, yeah, you did it wrong. And so then a lot of times girls aren't given the freedom to, to experiment as much. Hopefully that kind of thing changes. Uh, because I think that there's a lot of value in, in experimenting and playing around. Are we cyborgs? I don't know. I'll give you more context then. We talked about technology mm -hmm. and interfacing technology with humans right now. Oh. Are we currently there? We just happen to pick it up and attach ourselves. Interesting. I thought about that. Like the, we're all carrying phones with us. Mm-hmm. We're all a mixture of like in our everyday, we don't have to be, we jump in the shower, we take our phone off, whatever. But um, in our ordinary lives going around, we are a mixture of technology and biological organism all the time. And they, I mean, I don't have a robot arm, but I have a tricorder in my pocket. Interesting. Uh, what would it, why am I not a cyborg? Could I argue, oh yeah, I'm not a cyborg. Hard to argue that I'm not because I'm constantly using this technology mm -hmm. at the same time as other stuff. Mm. I hadn't thought that if I was a cyborg already. Hmm. That's interesting. At one point in time, I wanted to do like make a robot shell and like, what if I had like a robot body? Wouldn't that be so cool? Have you seen them? What the military has it for moving ammunitions? Oh yeah, I've seen those kinds of things. It's like it's those. It's really cool, like exoskeletons. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about replacing my skeleton, like replacing my whole like body with like. What if that was all synthetic? I was like, well, nobody really wants to cuddle up against it, to 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 that. It'd be a very lonely life if your body was made. Of, I don't know, maybe not. That's it. Yeah, and I think I think we are cyborgs right now. I mean, I wear an Apple watch mm -hmm. and it's giving me feedback on my, like my heart rate and other stuff. And later on, you know, this is going to be more extensive. It's going to tell me about all sorts of other kind of biometrics someday. Like we're all going to be carrying around with us things that are giving like biometric kind of stuff. It's like, you may be not now, but maybe later it'll be like a subdermal implant that everybody will have, mm -hmm. you know, and it just is like monitoring all sorts of stuff. And it's like, you know what we've detected, there's a small, you know, population of cancer cells in your body and it's time to do this and this and this. And if you don't deal with it now, there's going to be trouble later. And that would be really useful to know. Or, oh, we've just detected something or other in the air and stuff like this. You should probably not breathe deeply and get outside, you know, or something like that it would be... And so, yeah, how is that not being a cyborg? Definitely. Especially when you start to respond to what it tells you to do. Yeah. Which we're doing. I do it all the time. I have a whoop 
don't uh, know what a whoop is. It's a wearable that tells me everything from heart rate, heart rate variability, blood, oxygen, oh, cool. content, sleep. So you don't have a, so you have a, how does it do that? Wearable on the wrist. Okay, but that's not going to do breathing? Yeah, because your heart rate changes when you, okay. her breath. Okay. So when you breathe in, there's so a, a difference. It's the proxy. It's using your heart rate to, yeah. to figure out. And it breathing. can extrapolate in. They found during COVID, yeah. they could predict that you are get like you are catching COVID at right, right now because it would be because yeah. your recovery and your heart rate variability and your respiratory rate, the how many breaths per minute mm -hmm. changes the day or two days before you come down with symptoms. Wow! And so this is the thing. Like, how do you, how do we defeat the next pandemic? We get everybody wearing things like whoops, and we could get we could figure out who's probably infected before they even know it. Mm -hmm. And you can send them messages like, hey, you know, you're probably infected. You should probably stay away from other people. Yeah. yeah. But but this is just the beginning of it. That's just heart rate. You can imagine like if you had some other kinds of devices on you that could be looking directly into your blood and assaying things like maybe it's just something like you have in your toilet. And every time you go to the bathroom, it's running assays on the stuff that's in there. And it's like, you know what? I can tell that you've had like four cups of coffee today and you should really back off because this is not good for you. You know, stuff like that, right? Useful stuff. But it doesn't even maybe have to be invasive. Like it's in your body. It could just be around you and communicating to your, your little devices. Yeah. Yeah, we already are cyborgs. I, I, I agree with you. But this is the beginning of it. We'll become more, cy more and more cyborgs later. Well, I, I look forward to it. <laughs> well this has been really great i think the message of combining passion with academics is really important for students to hear thank you professor korf thanks it was uh, fun to be here pleasure having you to continue your learning go to our website discoveringacademia.com there you will find the show notes resources mentioned ways to get involved and much more pertaining to each professor if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.